Saint Basil once said, words are truly the image of the soul. Welcome to the 27th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because the words that we use to describe ourselves and our lives are worthy of exploration and perhaps challenging in order to lead us to grow in our mental well-being and the well-being of our souls. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, how do we find each other again? When we're dealing with a busy household as a married couple and our agenda is busy with kids, work, and other outside activities, the relationship can take the back seat. And how in the world can we fix that? Or should we even worry about it at all? Last part of the question first. Sometimes we can feel guilty about taking time for ourselves, for our relationship as a married couple. We can trick ourselves into thinking that we don't deserve to have time to ourselves. We decide we have to give 100% to our children or our other responsibilities all the time and feel selfish if we do anything for ourselves. While we all fall into that line of thinking from time to time, it's important to note that it's really, really dangerous and detrimental to the entire family unit. We have to find ways to reconnect with our spouse, to actually spend time with them, and to get back to a healthy, thriving relationship. Getting out for a date night, that's an ideal thing to do. And while many of us can pull that off from time to time, it can be few and far between. So at-home date nights are an opportunity not to be missed. Once the final kid hits the sack, instead of instantly flipping on the show you've been watching, keep the screen turned off and spend some time together. Talk. Enjoy a special snack or a drink that you both like. And just hang out. If even that seems like a lot, and sometimes it can, I gotta say, even something as simple as taking a walk around a playground, just the two of you while the children are playing, can do a lot for reconnecting. It doesn't have to be complicated, but it has to happen. While it seems like we have to keep doing more and more and more for our kids, I'm sure you can all agree that when our primary relationship in the family suffers or isn't taken care of, the entire family suffers. For me, I get more irritable, less patient, and just grumpy. And then when my wife and I are able to spend some time nurturing our relationship, I'm filled back up and ready to be a dad with a much more loving, calm, and compassionate attitude. So don't neglect your spouse and your relationship with them. Have some chips and guac and margaritas after the kids go to bed tonight. Next up, what can we do to support the mental well-being of young elementary school kids? There are terrifying stories out there of kids as young as seven or eight trying to commit suicide. We'd all like to believe it can't happen to our kids, but what can we do to help keep their struggles from getting to that point? Man, this is a heavy one, but it's really true. The suicide rate, which is suicides per 100,000 individuals for children under the age of 15, has gone from 0.8 in 2000 up to 1.34 in 2017. And when you look at age 15 to 24, it gets really shocking, with the most recent data putting the rate at 1446 To help put that into perspective, suicide is the third leading cause of death for children age 10 to 14. We've got to do something, and yet it's such a scary and taboo topic, and most of us don't know what to do. So here's some quick ideas you can try in your family. First, we have to clear up a myth. Talking about suicide does not plant the idea of suicide in someone's head and lead them to taking their own life. 
Many people assume that bringing up suicide might lead someone to do it. However, research shows that this couldn't be further from the truth. If someone's considering suicide, rest assured they've been thinking about it constantly. So you bringing it up doesn't plant the idea, but actually brings about relief because it gets the topic out into the open. So how do we ask the question? If, if a, a loved one seems depressed to the point we're worried about their safety, what do we say? The best advice I can give is to be direct. If you're concerned for the safety of someone you love, ask the question in the least ambiguous terms you can think of. Something as direct as, have you been thinking about wanting to kill yourself? While seemingly abrasive and insensitive, this may actually be the best way to ask the question, precisely because it gets right to the point. Asking questions like, are you feeling safe? Or have you been thinking about hurting yourself lately? Skirts around the issue and may lead to your loved one feeling like you're too afraid to be with them in their darkest hour. And yes, you should even talk about suicide with your children. While we may choose different language to convey our point, it's still important to have these discussions as early as you think might be appropriate, precisely because, as I mentioned, suicide is the third leading cause of death for children aged 10 to 14. With younger kids, parents might bring up the topic by talking about feelings of sadness that we all have from time to time and discussing how sometimes people feel so sad they wish they could just disappear and never come back. This then leads to exploring how our family is always there to help whenever someone might feel like this and that even though sadness can feel like it's going to last forever, it almost always gets better. With slightly older kids, it's extremely important to ask their friend about their friends at school. Has anyone you know at, know at school uh, ever talked about wanting to kill themselves? Or is there anyone you know at school who has tried to take their own life? And in today's world of constantly being logged onto the internet, another valuable question is, have you ever searched online about ways to kill yourself? Or have you ever seen someone on social media or YouTube talk about suicide? Of course, these are all judgment calls that only a parent can make, knowing their child's developmental level. And it's important to remember that these are just jumping off points for conversations that share the truth about depression and suicide in our lives. The deeper conversations have to happen. Conversations that show there will always be support from family no matter what. Conversations that show that feelings can be openly discussed in the family without shame or stigma. Tell them that they will be loved and uh, that you and that mom and dad can help them and even get outside help when it's needed. Therapy for the child, therapy for the family, etc. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today I'm here to share a bit about St. Ignatius of Loyola. youngest of 13 children, Ignatius's mother died shortly after his birth, and he was brought up by the local blacksmith's wife. He embarked on an impressive military career, but after being blasted in the leg by a cannonball, his career came to an end. While recovering from surgery, he had a deep religious conversion and felt the call to religious life. And holy smokes, are we reaping the benefits of that miraculous change in life that God inspired now. As Ignatius went on to found the Jesuit order and make so many incredible contributions to the spiritual journey of so many of us down to the present day. What I'd like to explore here, though, is his major depressive episode that came shortly after his conversion. Again, 
Another example of a saint who experienced mental health struggles after turning in the direction God wanted them to turn, Ignatius experienced scruples and doubts, which led to poor concentration, indecisiveness, recurrent thoughts of death and suicide, loss of interest or uh, pleasure in prayer and the liturgy, agitation, self-punishment, loss of weight, and on and on and on. Hat tip to IgnatianSpirituality.com for this info. Interestingly, he worked through this depression through a bit of cognitive behavioral therapy, looking at his bad thinking and working to challenge it and replace it with something healthier. What a wonderful advocate we have when we feel depressed and don't know where to turn. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer, so here we go. Lord, teach me to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give and not count the cost, to fight and not heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not to ask for reward, save that of knowing that I do your will. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. First up, Anonymous is here. Is it possible to ever heal from severe childhood abuse? I go to counseling and have been for almost two years, but it feels useless. Every aspect of my life still feels tied to trauma. I want to forget it and be a normal person. Instead, I keep finding ways my family screwed me up. I know it takes hard work. I'm just exhausted and wondering if there's an easier way to go about this. I'd like to ask every single person listening to join me in a prayer for Anonymous, for healing from childhood abuse that never should have been a part of their life, and for everyone trying to get help for their response to trauma but finding it to be an uphill climb. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. I wish I could give you a hug, Anonymous. I wish I could somehow give you the hope and peace that can be so difficult to find and hold on to after the experience you had to live through as a child. First, to answer your question right off the top, yes, it is possible to heal from severe childhood abuse. It doesn't always feel like it's possible, but healing, peace, and untying the abuse and trauma from every aspect of your life is possible. But it happens at a different pace and by way of a different path for every individual. What helps one person may not be helpful to another. You mentioned that you wish you could just forget it and be a normal person, and I I totally understand what you mean. But I also want to remind you that you most definitely are a normal person. And the reaction you're experiencing even to this day is absolutely within the range of what anyone would expect to feel and go through after what you've experienced. I'm happy that you're in counseling. It's such a helpful thing to have an impartial person willing to walk with you through this process and start to figure things out. And at the same time, I'm wondering if you feel stuck, if you feeling stuck has anything to do with the modality of therapy you're involved in, or maybe even the person themselves. I can only assume they're a good therapist, obviously, but I will say this for your benefit and everyone's. Based on our personalities, experiences, and the way we see the world, we might connect to different therapeutic modalities than another person, and even to different therapists as individual people. Many therapists are often experts at just one modality, and sometimes we have to be willing to take a look at things and see if it's a good fit for us or not. As an example, I prefer cognitive behavioral therapy, which looks at challenging and changing my thinking from unhealthy patterns to healthy ones. I like setting goals, looking at what's going wrong in the present moment, 
it and tackling those problems. I don't like sitting around and talking about my feelings or going on and on about my past while a therapist says, hmm, I see. Tell me how that makes you feel. However, there's nothing wrong with feeling more connected to the latter and wanting a therapist like that. The important thing is that we're honest about what kind of therapy works best for us and then seeking it out. And while I know I talked about it a few episodes back, I do have to say if you're feeling stuck with therapy, maybe seeking someone trained in EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing therapy could help get the ball rolling in the right direction for you. The relationship is also key, and even though it's hard, we have to be willing to come to the conclusion that we may not just click with a certain therapist or perhaps have gone as far as uh, as far with them as possible. Nothing against them, nothing against us, but just like we wouldn't be friends with every single person we meet, we might not click with every single therapist we meet, and it's okay to change. We don't take it personally. You're going forward covered in the prayers of everyone listening. That I can say for sure. Next up, Jojo asks, I'm interested in discussing how to maintain relationships and boundaries with family members that are anti-Catholic and are bad influences on young children. I have a mother-in-law who cannot be trusted and yet need to try to have a relationship with her for my husband's sake. Let's stop and pray for Jojo, her family, and and her mother-in-law that God's grace may pour into their hearts and bring them peace. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. It's such a tough one, Jojo, knowing the difference between loving everyone as Christ commands and realizing that loving doesn't necessarily mean letting everyone have free reign over our lives. I have to start by saying it's a blessing that you've been thinking about how best to navigate the relationship and how best to show love to your husband while also keeping your kids safe and free from a potentially negative influence. There are a couple things I would consider in terms of trying to maintain this relationship. First, you and your husband need to be on the same page. I completely understand the importance of trying to keep this relationship going for your husband's sake, but he needs to understand your boundaries, why you need them, and he's got to be willing to maintain this relationship with her under those conditions. Next, most people are understanding when it comes to conversations where we decide we're not going to talk about religion in front of each other, for example, at least while the kids are around, if they have such a huge difference of opinion, and especially if it borders on being so anti that the words end up hurting people. So I would say a direct one-on-one conversation where ground rules are set up and everyone knows them is a great starting point. Of course, it's still important to have a conversation with the kids about what we believe that others believe differently and might say things that aren't in line with what we believe and that we still have to treat everyone with respect even if it seems like they're not treating us with that same respect. Lastly, and I mean this in terms of my list and the last action you would take if nothing else works, We have to be willing to separate ourselves from certain people in our lives, even when it's really hard to do so, in order to keep our children safe and keep our mental health on track. We always keep the door open if things can improve, obviously, but sometimes we've got to take a step back, and that's okay. It's hard to navigate all this, Jojo, but we'll be praying for you. Anonymous wraps us up. Can you talk about offering support during the early stages of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, both to the sufferer and the primary caregiver? 
Additional complicating factor is that the sufferer refuses to pursue official diagnosis, which could lead to treatment. Before we start, let's pray for Anonymous, everyone suffering from cognitive issues, and everyone caring for them, because it's such a tough road and can often feel lonely and overwhelming if you don't know where to look for support. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Watching our parents or spouse or even siblings go through the early stages of cognitive difficulties is such a challenge. And as with many other situations, we can feel at a total loss in terms of how to give support. And also, like many other situations, we can often neglect our own well-being while taking care of others and get burned out. I'll start by sharing that Alzheimer's Association is a great organization to get linked up with, ALZ.org. And they have local support groups, over-the-phone help, and even ideas about early engagement when people aren't sure they want to engage with support for their issues. And speaking of their website, here's some advice about navigating relationships in this very situation from the perspective of the individual's suffering. Be open about your feelings. Share your experience living with the disease. Be specific about how you'd like to continue relationships and how you like to be treated. Let others know what social activities you feel most comfortable doing and the best ways to share time together. Learn how to ask for help. Tell others how they can help you and, ex and expectations that you have for support. Strengthen trusting relationships. Focus on those relationships which are supportive and show your gratitude for the people you love and appreciate. Reevaluate relationships. Don't dwell on people unable to support you at this time or people who are unable to have a positive presence in your life. Give them the time to adjust to your diagnosis and try not to take their pulling away personally. See yourself as unique and human. You have much left to experience. I'd also like to point out, since you mentioned your loved one is reluctant to get a diagnosis and proper treatment, I thought it might be worth it to drive home this point. It's something I say to family members in your situation and family members of those suffering from chronic uh, mental illness. The behaviors of your loved one, the ones that are causing you distress, pain, sorrow, those behaviors are not the free choice of your loved one. It isn't them. It isn't their condition, it, I'm sorry, it is their condition causing these behaviors. And it's important to make this distinction because it helps us to foster the compassion we need to continue helping our loved ones. It's true with a baby who cries out all night. It's true with someone who's tired because of their cancer. And it's true when it comes to depression, cognitive diagnoses, bipolar disorder, PTSD, anxiety, and everything similar that we cope with. While it may be frustrating at times, there's always a clear knowledge that it's the disorder causing the problem and not the person. To wrap it up, here's some advice for family members from the ALZ website when entering into this early stage caregiving relationship. Consider safety first. Avoid stress. Prioritize tasks or actions that do not cause unnecessary stress for the person with dementia. For example, if you know that grocery shopping will be frustrating for the person with dementia, ask for their participation to outline a weekly menu and organize a grocery list. Make positive assumptions. Assume that the person with dementia is capable of completing the task. Create a help signal. Identify a cue or phrase that you can use to confirm if the person with dementia is comfortable receiving support. For example, you may agree to use phrases like, is there anything I can do to help? Or a nod to a signal that it's okay to chime in if the person with dementia is having a difficult time remembering a word or a name. 
talk it over. The best way to determine how and when to provide support is to ask directly. Work better together. Find activities to do together and keep the conversation going about expectations for how you will provide support. Check in regularly by asking the person with dementia if you're providing a level of assistance that is comfortable or adequate. All right, God bless. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves, take care of yourselves, and if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry, I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.